what's really shocking as you're as you're telling us about those different um different accounts um Eden is the is the amount of time that people are ending up caught up in this which you know presumably that's taking a massive toll on people's not only their mental health but also their physical health if they're living with stress for you know up to 10 years ahead in one of those you know you can only think about the impact that speaking up has on people's quality of life really and and potentially the health health impact for the future if you're living with chronic stress for for 10 years oh massively um you know a lot of whistleblowers end up on sickness they lose their homes and this is reality some people have ended up on the streets because they've lost their homes um and the mental toll it takes on you i've known whistleblowers that have committed suicide because they cannot take the anxiety and stress that it causes you are in fight or flight mode all the time and from going from whistleblowing and losing your job then doing the process leading up to employment tribunals going through tribunals you know there's never a rest a lot of people get cancers because they are so stressed it's horrendous mental health wise I can honestly say I have hit rock bottom at times where I thought this is it I can't take it anymore I talked to other whistleblowers who are in exactly the same place now and you know I think that's having the group allows me to help these people along to give them hope that there is something afterwards but as you say you know mine was three years till I got employment tribunal that's a long time we're talking some eight ten years twelve years it's life changing and you never a lot of whistleblowers end up with complex PTSD um and you know i'm lucky i've gone on a different path there's many that don't you're very powerful um very powerful to hear you hear you speak it it resonates quite strongly with uh, me eden i mean i can remember long periods of time when it felt uh, to me as if they and it kind of became a they in my mind were out to destroy me um, which which was almost akin in my thinking at the time to wanting to kill me um, because that's how it uh, felt it's a, it's a desperate uh, experience horrendous horrendous and you mentioned um, that staff often use them to feel safer but I also wondered whether staff I mean I think we can probably all recognize times when staff teams have felt very angry and there's been a clamor for more restrictive practices perhaps because of anger that might not be acknowledged openly and I think sometimes as staff you end up as psychologists you can end up psychotherapists end up walking the line where the staff group might not feel protected and looked after enough and yet we also have a responsibility to look after the patient and make sure the patient's not being treated in a way that's that's punitive is that that a dynamic that you recognize from your work yeah it, it is it is yeah and um i think just to sort of break break the question down a little bit um mm-hmm. 
that the, the emotional experiences of staff are, are really important when we think about things like restrictive practices and, and, and trying to reduce them. Um, so, for example, higher levels of anger and fear among staff have been associated with higher endorsement of restraint use, as well as actual increased use of restraint and seclusion. Things like low morale among staff has also been associated with repeated restrictive practice use. It, it kind of makes sense if we think of the environments where members of staff work as well. So they be, they can be really quite challenging and, and dangerous. Um, so then, you know, what, what we think kind of happens and what I, I alluded to earlier is that uh, restrictive practices become a way to, to contain and reduce the threat that might be posed in these, these environments, which in turn helps the staff to feel safe um, and subsequently reinforces the use of restrictive practices, I think. Um, and there's all sorts of like cognitive strategies as well that, that staff use to cope with, with um, the challenging situations they find themselves in, I think, uh, but, but actually cause some problems when it comes to restrictive practices and reducing restrictive practices. Things like detachment or othering or you know, things like bravado or all those types of things can really be um, tricky sometimes because it can really influence the attitudes and the cultures of the world environment. And we know that's important for, for, for lots of reasons. So then you talked about um, as a, a like a psychologist or psychotherapist trying to kind of um, manage the, the I suppose the, the the splits that sometimes we, we see in in uh, between staff who, who work day to day 24 hours with um, service users and then like perhaps the, the, the um, multidisciplinary team who see that the, the service users far less uh, often and I think you know that's a tricky that's a, it's a it's a it's a tricky thing to try and to try and address I think and and I think it's like a like a like a common challenge as well I do think there's a few things that, that we can do to, to sort of help with this sort of thing and I think essentially it probably sounds a little bit cliche but I think a lot of the time what it comes down to is like um uh, communication and, and how and what teams communicate with the staff while providing the day-to-day care so I think things like being transparent with decision making communicating the reasons for decisions helps not just sort of enforcing the decision on, on, on people asking them to do it and that includes like decisions around restricted practice as well um, and to balance the views of everybody and take on board I, I think quite what, what can happen sometimes is that the sort of views and opinions of, of the day-to-day of the -day staff can, can be missed but it's just trying to sort of show that those those are considered and, and, and then acknowledge and validating like anxieties or frustrations that staff might have um, and sometimes just helping the staff to feel valued. You know, I've met a lot of staff um, who work day to day on the wards, um, do, you know, do, do fantastic work in really challenging environments, and they just they don't feel very valued sometimes. So I think that could help. And then, That's such an important point, isn't it? I think when you know we know that for staff to be compassionate, they need to feel that they've been treated compassionately themselves, and it's quite hard. I think when you see staff perhaps not being treated in an optimum way, and that might be due to lack of resources. Or... I agree with you that, that, well, I as a man can be quite wary of groups of other men. If, if, if not of actual violence, then there's an anxiety about humiliation, because men are pretty good at humiliating uh, other, other men and women, of course. So I think you can really 
good description there of the kind of safety and containment that you experience with the spice of something, as you put it, a little bit edgy and new and yeah. discovery. It was, it was edgy. I mean, I had such a front on going up to that weekend and right from the word go, it just dropped. And I thought, my God, this is serious. It was, it was, incre it was serious. So it wasn't a penny that dropped. It was something a lot heavier than a penny, but um, maybe a drop in a well, but in all that stillness, it, it certainly landed with me. This is, this is serious stuff. And it was, you know, some of the th conversations or things we were doing and invited to do, and especially some of the, I guess, in a landscape sort of work, uh, in a narrative sort of work uh, around difficult experiences, you know, that I, and I you know since working with others, you know, I wish had never happened or I wish I could forget about, but just unable to, because it's sort of locked in locked into my body you know so we're talking about trauma here or early any sort of experience which left its mark it doesn't matter what it was it's the mark it left um so it was i guess just loosening up some of those understanding how that impacted on how i was understanding the world and myself and just begin to loosen up and be offered an alternative like from an adult state to go well this isn't happening now so there's no need to be like that. And just seeing that whole sort of misguided, I guess it, it, was, it wasn't misguided, but it was definitely misguided in an adult state. As a young person, some of that stuff, yet yeah, needed to be in as black and white as that. If you think about it, prison hasn't really changed substantially since we first started putting people in prison. And I think, you know, there's a if you are looking to it depends what you know what are we trying what purpose are we trying to serve via prisons are we serving um the you know the purpose of vengeance uh for society or are we trying to cut crime because i don't think i don't think we're cutting crime by putting uh, well i don't think that's the best way to cut crime by putting people in prison and so having some central commission where people feed in evidence from all sorts of sources might re result in a very different different looking um approach to justice and and offending won't it yeah and and this links back to the sort of changes that i was proposing because um you know it strikes me that it's very wrong that someone with substance misuse issues for example can get better access and more ready access to substances in custody than they can in the community. If you've got mental health issues, um, then you're in trouble in prison because, you know, there's some very good mental health um, care in some prisons, but equally it's, there's some very bad. And the reality is it costs much more per year to keep someone detained in a mental health unit than it does in um, the prison system. But you know, it kind of goes back to what I was saying about the parole board. The parole board's rate of serious reoffending is 0.5%. So what I mean by that is um, those that are released by the parole board that go on to commit a serious offence. And we're not talking theft. You know, we're not talking um, public order offences. We're talking robbery, uh, GBH, um, 
serious harm offences, 0.5%. Thousands of prisoners go in front of the parole board each year. That statistic, as a member of the public, I feel like I can sleep easy. And that's why I mentioned that earlier when I said I sleep easy because I know the parole board works. Now, 0.5% is the system working. There is no Western world um, parole system that has a better rate as far as I understand. And that the, the very work of the parole board is looking into a crystal ball, as it were, to future crimes. You know, this is almost film territory, isn't it? Do we keep people locked up for fear mm -hmm. of future crimes? Uh, I think it, I think it might have been Vanilla Sky was the film. Um, that's the system working. And, and, you know, you have high profile cases like Colin Pitchfork who was released, you can argue till you're blue in the face whether it, he should have been released or not. Um, but he was in an open establishment at the point the parole board released him. So he was well on the path to being released and at some point inevitably would stand to be released because he'd been interacting with the public. He was recalled and the arguments um, resurfaced about whether the parole board got it right to release him. But what hasn't been said is he was recalled not for further offending but for compliance for breaching license conditions so that risk management plan worked because he was pulled back to custody for non-compliance before an offense was committed so that is the system working and you know i have clients that are recalled three or four times on their life sentences not for offending but for compliance missing an appointment um up you know um being late back that's the system working yeah it, you know that is that is exactly what we want but um the, the system is flawed in so many ways in that regard because um does does a sentence ha given our current prison system what percentage of prisoners come out better than when they went in, I would say it's very few. And that's, as a member of the public, that should be concerning. But equally, those that go in front of the parole board and released, the chances of reoffending, serious reoffending are so low. Now, if you think about the reoffending rate for those that don't go in front of the parole board, it's much, much higher. Mm -hmm. So I would always advocate the parole board releasing someone as opposed to relying on the Ministry of Justice to release someone.